This is African News Tonight on The Voice of America. Hello and welcome. Welcome to African News Tonight from the English to Africa service of The Voice of America, your source for Pan-African news and world developments. I'm Yehyes Wuhib in Washington. Coming up on African News Tonight... Transnet, rail and other systems that they operate is equivalent to the kind of literally the lifeblood of the country. And if it stops, the consequences are just enormous to the entire country. That's labor lawyer Patrick Dial on the potential impact of a strike by South Africa's transport workers. Details coming up also. Today is the International Day of the Girl Child. Chad's Prime Minister has resigned to make room for a new government to prepare for elections. And a UN report says the world needs to double its supply of electricity from renewables by 2030. We'll have these stories and more on African News tonight. We start with our top story. A coup d'etat in Burkina Faso in January placed Lieutenant Colonel Paul Andri Sandoga Damiba at the head of a military government. Eight months later, Damiba was replaced by Captain Ibrahim Traore as the country's interim leader in a second coup. As the African Union continues to celebrate its 20-year anniversary, the resurgence of coups in the Sahel has called into question its seriousness in combating unconstitutional changes of government. Paul Milley is Consulting Fellow, Africa Program, at Chatham House, with a focus mainly in politics and stability in Francophone Africa and grassroots development at the Sahel. With military interventions on the rise, and particularly the boldness of the military in the case of Burkina Faso to conduct a second coup, I asked Paul Milley, if this shows how little the military fears the African Union, or for that matter of fact, ECOWAS. I don't think so, actually. I think particularly this Burkina coup should be seen as essentially an internal change just within the military who had taken power in January because there was some sign of resentment, if you like, among some of the military over the behavior of uh, Damiba, the military leader who took power in January. I don't think the, the soldiers were even thinking about the African Union particularly. I think the most influential bloc in West Africa is ECOWAS, and uh, they very quickly agreed to stay in the framework that had already been agreed with ECOWAS. Now, the test will remain, will they stick with that? We don't know. But if they live up to it, then I think we would see this really as an internal shuffle, an internal change within the military. Has the declining fearsomeness of Nigeria within the ECOWAS system limited its deterrence capability in West Africa? Um, no, I don't think so. I, I think the culture of ECOWAS has always been one of collective action. Uh, Nigeria does not dominate ECOWAS. Although it's much the largest economy and accounts for a very big chunk of the population of West Africa, with after well over 200 million people, it actually operates and shows respect for the collective decision-making systems of ECOWAS. And that sense of West Africa as a coherent collective region that has a strong sense of West African identity in which Nigeria may be a very large country, but just cooperates with its neighbors, 
that remains the case and it it has been the case for decades as usual the international community including the united nations the economic community of west african states ecowas and the african union au uh, condemn the military takeovers but is that enough don't you think the region will experience more military coups if the au and international community are not more rigid in their opposition to the unlawful use of instruments of coercion by the military no i think their stance is clear but i don't think that threatening extra sanctions or a more rigorous condemnation the condemnation was very clear but we need to remember that Burkina Faso is one of the poorest countries in the world. If you impose very heavy economic trade sanctions, the people who will suffer wouldn't be the soldiers who staged a coup, but just ordinary Burkina Bay people who would then not be able to get basic goods and who would see their jobs, their livelihoods uh, damaged. Um, if you look at the coups that we've had in the region over the last two or three years, each one has been in a country for a very specific region, reason. Quite, uh, and although in some cases the fact that one coup has happened has encouraged soldiers in another to think that they could act like this, I don't think that a very heavy economic sanctions on a country are necessarily the answer. The answer is in much more in trying to strengthen political culture and strengthen the core democratic institutions. And Burkina is a bit different from uh, the situation in uh, Guinea, for example. In Guinea, the coup was provoked by the fact that the president who was elected then changed the constitution so he could seek another term. He had thrown political critics into prison. The security forces were committing human rights abuses. And so that created a situation where there was popular support where the army intervened. In Burkina, it's quite different. No one was questioning the democratic president's uh, legitimacy or, in fact, his following of democratic rules. But his military campaign to try and contain the jihadists proved ineffective. And then in Mali, you have a different situation again. ECOWAS is right to take the slightly longer term view and try and build a culture of cooperation and negotiation to nudge countries back into constitutional democratic rule. That was Paul Milley, Consulting Fellow, Africa Programme at Chatham House, speaking with me from London. Just days after peace talks to end the almost two-year-long conflict between the Ethiopian government and Tigray forces were postponed, the rebels say Eritrea has extended its offensive into their region. In a statement yesterday, the Tigray forces said Eritrea's military has launched an extensive offensive in the direction of Rama, Zalambasa and Sarona towns in northeastern Tigray. They urged Tigray's population to further intensify their campaign of self-defense. Meanwhile, Ethiopian President Sahalawark Zodeh has reiterated calls for negotiations and other peaceful methods to end the country's nearly two-year civil war. While addressing the Ethiopian parliament yesterday, she also stated that at the same time, the government of Ethiopia will not tolerate any provocation by the TPLF. Hussein Keflu, a political and social commentator, tells VOA's Douglas Puga that Eritrea might have its own reasons to attack TPLF. For Isaiah Saforki, uh, as you know, he's waging this war uh, for two reasons. One is to avenge uh, his defeat uh, in, in, during the 1998 
bad mewar. And uh, two, because uh, by uh, perennially posturing uh, in a state of war mode, that's how he thinks that uh, he can maintain uh, control over Eritreans. Uh, if there is no war situation, then uh, he cannot uh, pretend uh, with his uh, you know, endless conscription of uh, Eritrean youth. These are the main reasons that uh, Isaiah Saporki is involved in this war in Tigray. So this comes amid postponed uh, peace talks between the, uh, the Tigray uh, forces and the Ethiopian government. And yesterday, Ethiopian president called uh, for peaceful means to end the conflict, although she also cautioned the PTPLF against what she called provocation of the Ethiopian government. Do these mixed messages help resolve the situation? Uh, no, it doesn't help at all, because these people, they know very well that uh, what they call TPLF, uh, after all, the president herself, and also Abiy Ahmed and company, they were at the hirelings of TPLF. They worked under TPLF. And they know very well that TPLF enjoys a huge and tremendous support from the Tigran people. That doesn't make it, you know, the way Tigran support uh, TPLF, it doesn't mean that they all endorse uh, TPLF's policy, uh, uh, you know, according to the letter. It's just like the Vietnamese were supporting the Vice Congs. It doesn't mean that all Vietnamese were communists. But for various reasons, because they were uh, they were not happy with the way Americans were dealing with their with their situation, so they they supported they rallied behind the white cons. So now Tigrans, even though they don't endorse all of Tigrans, don't endorse the policy of TPLF. They support TPLF. You know there is TPLF enjoys a huge support from the Tigrans. It is the international community. That, that is also buying this story, and uh, they think that by eradicating TPLF, the whole problem in that region will be solved. But that's not, uh, that's not uh, uh, what's going to happen. And where does all this leave the prospect of uh, solving this conflict peacefully through talks, briefly? You know, the way I see it, uh, there is no uh, genuine desire uh, to end this uh, war uh, peacefully. Uh, all they try uh, to do is, uh, you know, whenever they they mention about peace talk, it's just to buy time. They are not uh, genuine about it. So I don't think so. There is any genuine desire for peace talk, especially from even from the African Union. International community is also showing double standard while they express concern for uh, Ukraine. They don't seem to care about what's going on uh, in Tigray. Given the humanitarian situation in Tigray, uh, in the present uh, conflict, what chances are there to help the people who are trapped in uh, the region? Currently, with the way the Eritrean regime and uh, the Ethiopian regime, uh, Isaiah Saporki and Abiy Ahmed, are conducting a war of attrition, coupled with the previous problem. You know, Tigray has been blockaded for almost two years. There is little humanitarian aid uh, going into Tigray. So now, with the past one month, with this war of attrition, it's even difficult to imagine how many civilians are dying by indiscriminate bombing, uh, in addition to uh, famine. Uh, when this conflict, when this war ends in one way or another, what the world is going to witness uh, in Tigray is really scary. 
That was Hussein Kiflu, a political and social commentator. He spoke with Douglas Mpuga from Dallas, Texas. A strike by 21,000 transport workers has paralyzed South Africa's ports and is costing the already buckling economy an estimated 6 billion rands or more than $330 million a day in lost revenue. Fresh produce destined to European shelves is rotting in harbors and precious metals ready to export to Europe, the Far East and the United States aren't going anywhere. Darren Taylor has more. Transnet is South Africa's state-owned logistics company and it operates the country's rail network, ports and fuel pipelines. Workers went on strike last Thursday demanding higher wages. Transnet's offering them an increase of 3%, but unions representing most of the parastatal 60,000 employees have rejected that, saying it's way below South Africa's current inflation rate of almost 8%. The United National Transport Union and the South African Transport and Allied Workers Union say they're digging in on their demand for a 13.5% salary increase. You know, on the other hand, what Transnet is saying is that, look, the bank is empty. We don't have the money. Labour lawyer Patrick Deal says it's a matter of who'll blink first. Transnet's adamant its offer of 3% is reasonable given its financial standing. It says this increase alone will add 950 million rands, about $55 million, to its salary bill. But Deal says it's not surprising that workers are holding out for more given high inflation and the rising cost of living. Being a union leader in the negotiations, acting on a mandate of its members to try and get the best deal possible is a seriously difficult task. Then the leaders have got to go back and say, look, I'm sorry, we can't move there. And now what do we do? The toughest negotiations are actually between the union leaders and the members. Deal says dysfunctional ports and railways are the last thing the struggling economy needs. South Africa's biggest producer of iron ore, Kumba, is losing exports of 120,000 tonnes per day. Iron ore is essential for the production of steel, and it's usually one of the major exports of Africa's most industrialised economy. But now it can't get it to its biggest buyers in China, Europe, Japan and South Korea. Production at Kumba's mines is slowing and it expects to lose 90,000 tons a day if the strike continues much longer. Deal says high-value exports like motor vehicles, gold, diamonds, manganese and chrome are also disrupted. Transnet rail and other systems that they operate is equivalent to the kind of literally the lifeblood of the country and if it stops, the consequences are just enormous to the entire country. And so the pressure is huge on the employer to settle, but also on the state and government. Coal is another key South African export, and it's become even more important since an energy crisis hit Europe as a result of the war in Ukraine. The country's shipments of coal to Europe jumped eightfold in the first half of 2022, but trade experts say the strike will force South Africa to cut back on those. Christo van der Rieder, executive director of South Africa's main agricultural organization 
AgriSA says the strike means millions of dollars lost in exports of deciduous and citrus fruits and berries. We've got commitments to retailers overseas and to markets overseas. And uh, if you do not land your product in time, it is regarded as a sort of breach in terms of your contractual obligations. By the time your perishable products land there, it will be discarded because uh, the quality uh, to a very large extent, especially when it comes to a highly perishable projects such as berries, will be compromised. Thiel says South Africa is now at risk of losing some export markets. For VOA News, I'm Darren Taylor in Johannesburg. A new UN report says the world needs to double its supply of electricity from renewables by 2030 to avoid energy insecurity from climate change. And it calls for about $25 billion annually for clean energy financing for Africa, which today is one only attracting 2% of investment. The yearly study by the World Meteorological Organization also says extreme weather events are making power supplies less reliable. According to the French news agency AFP, research shows that nearly 90% of power from thermal, nuclear and hydroelectric power plants depend on fresh water for cooling. But many of the plants are located in areas under high water stress. In contrast, nuclear power plants, many of which are in coastal areas, are at risk of rising sea levels and flooding. The UN Children's Agency, UNICEF, says child marriage and female genital mutilation, FGM, are on the rise in the Horn of Africa as a devastating drought intensifies, pushing families to the edge. From the Kenyan capital, Nairobi, Ruben Chama reports. Some say girls as young as 12 are being forced into child marriage and female genital mutilation at alarming rates. Emmanuel Kumpa is the UNICEF Regional Gender Advisor for Eastern and Southern Africa. Over the last 10 years, there has been an increased attention on issues that matters to girls by government in the regions, but the investment in adolescent girls remains far too limited, and they continue to face increased risk of child marriage, early pregnancy, and HIV infection. We have the highest adolescent pregnancy rate in the world, with alarming trends in Mozambique and Angola, and we know that every week more than 3,000 girls are newly infected by HIV in Eastern and Southern Africa. She spoke with VOA as the world prepares to mark the International Day of the Girl, celebrated annually on October 11th. According to the UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, several countries in the Horn of Africa, including Somalia, Ethiopia and Kenya, are suffering a historic drought that is affecting the lives of more than 36 million people. Hafsa Omar is a 19-year-old girl from Somaliland. In my country now, they are going through FGM. Although there are lots of awareness, but it's still like it's something which is going on because it's part of our culture and um, it's a taboo that young girls cannot talk about it. Again, it's going back to the psychological health-related things because when a young girl goes through this, she never has the chance to talk about it. She cannot express her feelings. She cannot say her opinions. In an assessment carried out in Somaliland earlier this year, almost a quarter of the people interviewed reported a rise in gender-based violence due to drought, including child marriage 
and domestic and sexual violence. Omar says girls have faced new challenges this year as a result of the triple threat of COVID, conflict and climate change. You know, lots of young girls were having mental health issues. It was a really hard time during the COVID, having the droughts and all that. It wasn't easy to find someone to talk about how this thing impacts our lives, how it changed our lives, because I don't know where the world changed into from face-to-face conversations to just virtual meetings. UNICEF says in Ethiopia, child marriage has on average more than doubled in the space of one year, especially in areas worst affected by the drought. In Tanzania, child marriages too seem to be on the rise, but UNICEF and Tanzanian authorities have launched a campaign aimed at ending the practice. Nabiha Kasim Ali is a youth activist with UNICEF Tanzania. She says this campaign seeks to outlaw the 1971 Law of Marriage Act, which currently allows girls to marry at 14 with court consent and 15 with parental consent. Child marriage and FGM drive girls out of school and leave them more vulnerable to domestic violence and a lifetime of poverty. Ruben Chama, VOA News, Nairobi. You're listening to African News Tonight on The Voice of America. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. The United Nations Children's Fund, UNICEF, says efforts to expand access to clean water, sanitation, and hygiene services in eastern and southern Africa would have to increase by 40 times to attain the UN Sustainable Development on Sanitation. Today is the International Day of the Girl Child, and UNICEF says about 50 million children of school age in the region do not have access to sanitation facilities, and girls are most affected by the problem. Mavis Ochera in Juwaso, in the Ashanti region of Ghana, has more. Farai Tunuma is the UNICEF specialist focused on clean water, sanitation and hygiene services for Eastern and Southern Africa. She says this year's celebration of the International Day of the Girl Child focuses on the rights of girls and alleviating the challenges they face. She says every person deserves access to improve sanitation and hygiene, noting that the UN General Assembly in 2016 fully recognized access to improve sanitation as a human right. She says there should be more networks and organizations that support inclusive services that benefit girls. We can all in our capacities engage with governments, policy makers and stakeholders so that we see targeted investments really focused on girls in WASH but also in other sectors so that we really protect girls from uh, some of the challenges. We also could be engaging with female influencers right across industries so that 
girls out there can see that great things are possible. Tunoma says the issue of access to sanitary facilities during menstruation was quite a challenge for many girls in the region. She says it was a basic right for girls to access these facilities, noting girls can face health risks if they do not have access to menstrual hygiene supplies. And without menstrual supplies, many girls are forced to miss school. She says some studies in Kenya shows that some girls turn to prostitution to pay for menstrual products showing the extent of what's called period poverty in Eastern and Southern Africa. That was Mavis Ocheri reporting on the International Day of the Girl Child. And that wraps up this edition of African News Tonight. I'm Yehiyas Wuhib in Washington. For all the latest developments on the continent 24-7, visit our website at voaafrica.com. On behalf of our producer, Mokwilia Barrow, and our engineer, Rob McLean, thanks for choosing the Voice of America.